Welcome to Kessler Foundation's 2016 Distinguished Beard Visiting Professorship Lecture, Present, Past, and Future of Memory Rehabilitation, presented by Dr. Barbara A. Wilson. The Beard Lecture Prize brings distinguished clinicians, educators, and scientists, such as Dr. Wilson, to Kessler Foundation to contribute to the education of our researchers. Barbara A. Wilson is a world-renowned clinical neuropsychologist with multiple Lifetime Achievement Awards. She's also the founder of the Oliver Zangwill Center for Neurophysiological Rehabilitation in Cambridgeshire, England. This presentation was recorded on Tuesday, December 13, 2016 at the Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation Conference Center, West Orange, New Jersey, and is sponsored by Kessler Foundation and the Beard Visiting Professorship Fund provided by William T. and Camille R. Baird. This podcast was edited and produced by Joan Banks-Smith of Kessler Foundation. It's a great pleasure and privilege and honour to be here, and I would like to thank Dr. DeLuca for inviting me and to the Kessler Institution. Um, I've heard about wonderful research in my two days here, um, but I just wanted to make it clear that I come from a slightly different perspective. I'm a clinician that's expected to deal with every patient that walks through the door. Um, and it's, it's always patient-driven, whatever we do. And um, I think if you're asking a question like how many patients improved with this procedure, then that's a group study, and you have to do group studies to answer that question. But the question I'm having to ask myself every day is, is this man or is this woman improving? And if so, is it because of what I'm doing, or would he or she have improved anyway? And you can't answer that question with group studies. You have to do that at an individual level. So I just wanted to make it clear, that's where I'm starting from. But I think the kind of work being done here and the kind of work we're doing are very much complementary. So if you come up with these wonderful treatment strategies, we will put them into our person-oriented rehabilitation. So that's where I wanted to start from. Now, um, sometimes patients or relatives say to me, but what is memory? What is it? And a very simple definition is memory is the ability to take in, store, and retrieve information. Um, now, memory rehab, it doesn't occur in a vacuum. Memory problems happen to real people, with families, with lots happening in their lives. And they usually have other problems too. They have other cognitive problems, not always, but mostly. And they have non-cognitive problems. They get depressed, they're anxious, they have social skills deficits, etc. And we have to deal with the emotional consequences of memory impairment or any other kind of cognitive impairment too. Now the talk's called Past, Present and Future, so let me address the past a bit. Now, when I started doing this work 40 years ago, memory rehab tended to focus on teaching... Is this still working? No. Let's try it again. What about this one? All right, let's go on to this one. Um, so in the past, memory rehab focused on teaching people lists of words or giving people memory exercises. Today it might be on a computer or paper and pencil exercises. And, or we taught mnemonics. 
I mean, I started off, my very first book on rehabilitation of memory was all about using mnemonics to help memory impair people. Um, and by teaching these demonics, we ex- uh, mnemonics, not demonics, mnemonics, <laughs> we thought that brain-injured people were expected to take these on board and use them spontaneously, which, of course, they don't do. And the assumption is, by doing these tasks, or the assumption was, by doing these tasks, we were somehow improving the underlying deficit that these people had, or else we're giving them strategies, to, uh, we're giving them people strategies that they can use to overcome their difficulties. So that's how memory rehab used to be in the 1980s. But there's no evidence that this works. People get better at the tasks they're practicing. Yes, there's evidence for that. But there's no evidence it generalises to real life and it helps them overcome their memory difficulties. So let's move on to the present. There's much more about the present than anything else. Uh, I think certainly in the past 30 years or so, our views have changed. Now one thing I keep saying, I say it to all of the patients that come into our centre, rehabilitation is not synonymous with recovery if by recovery we mean getting back to what you were like before the accident or illness or injury. And sometimes people do think rehab and recovery are the same thing. Um, But it's also not synonymous with treatment. At least, in my eyes, rehabilitation and treatment are different things. Treatment's something you do to people or give to people, like drugs or surgery. And rehabilitation is a two-way interactive process. That's my understanding of rehab. Um, So we should target real-life problems. So as far as possible, we need to address the real-life problems, real-life difficulties experienced by people with brain injury. Unless you're asking a particular question, and I think this probably relates more to the research work done at Kessler. If you're asking a particular question and you have to do it in an experimental way, um, but then the results you get should be applicable to real life problems. So we should focus on goals that are relevant to the patient's own everyday life. We should, if we can, implement these in the setting where the patient lives. I used to do a lot of home-based work. But if you can't do that because of the way your employment's set up, then you must make sure that whatever um, good results you get are generalisable to the setting the patient lives in. I think we should be collaborative. We work together with patients and families. We negotiate goals, we work out what they need to survive in their own everyday lives. And we're trying to reduce disability and improve real life functioning. I think very early on we're trying to improve impairments. But by the time most people get to rehab, we change that focus and we're trying to reduce disability and handicap. Now, people with cognitive problems following brain injury, memory problems and other cognitive problems, first of all, they're likely to have several cognitive problems. You do get people with the pure amnesic syndrome, and they're usually easier to work with because they can compensate well. But most of our brain injury rehab patients, our bread and butter patients, 
they don't have just one single deficit. They're going to have attention problems, memory problems, executive problems, word finding problems, slow information processing, etc. And they're also, many of them, are going to have non-cognitive problems. Anxiety, depression, social skills, post-traumatic stress disorder, and so forth. So it's very unlikely that any one model or theory or framework is going to address all of these difficulties. And we have to rely on a number of different models, theories, frameworks. If we don't, I think we get bad clinical practice. One of my PhD supervisors, a very eminent cognitive psychologist, said, well, the trouble with memory rehab is you don't have a good model. If you have a good model, then you can solve all the rehab problems. And I think that's rubbish. Because any good model of language or memory or perception or attention, what about what the family's distressed by? What about what jobs are most suitable for this person to go back to? The model's not going to tell you that. So you've got to rely on other models and theories. And the main purposes of rehab, I would suggest, I know people will argue with me, but it's to enable people with disabilities to achieve their optimum level of well-being, to reduce the impacts of their problems on everyday life, and to help them return to their most appropriate environments. Either getting home, if possible, it might be getting to a good nursing home or long-term care or some other facility. But we don't do rehab, at least I think it's not the right way to do rehab, to teach people lists of words, or to do better on tests, or to be faster at detecting stimuli on a computer. That's not the purpose of rehab. Now, most people with organic memory deficits, and I'm not going to be talking about um, functional or psychogenic memory deficits here. Um, I don't see those people. So most people with organic me memory deficits, their immediate memory is reasonable. The most amnesic guy I've ever worked with has a normal four-digit span. And that's true of most memory-impaired people. The problem is they have difficulty remembering after a delay or after a distraction. And they have difficulty learning most new information. Not all, as we'll see later, but most. And events that happen some time before the insult are typically remembered better than events that happened a short time before. And the, the kinds of problems that come up, these aren't the only problems, but very common ones are repeating the same question or same story or same joke over and over again. And this can drive the relatives crazy. It can drive therapists and psychologists crazy sometimes too. I, you know, I work with memory impaired people all the time and yet I find them often quite irritating. They're saying the same thing over and over again and I've got quite good memory. And I have to bite my tongue and say, you have told me that before or that's already recorded in your notebook or something like that. I don't get so cross with people with aphasia or people with unilateral neglect. But with memory impaired people, this can be really, really irritating. They're losing things, losing their glasses, losing their medicine, losing their this, that and the other. Wandering outside and getting lost. Forgetting to do things, prospective memory problems. Um, forgetting things told to them. 
So these might be some of the things we're focusing on in rehab and forgetting recent events. Now, as I see it, there are basically three main types of strategies to help people manage in everyday life. And these strategies aren't mutually exclusive. I typically use all of them. But helping people learn more efficiently, that's a very important part of memory rehab. Helping people to compensate for their difficulties. If they're going to have any kind of independent life, they're going to have to use compensations. And particularly for those with very severe, widespread deficits, memory deficits, we have to adjust or organise the environment in some way so that they don't need a memory. The environment's functioning as their memory. And this could be the physical environment, but the verbal environment too. This repeating the same question. It's often triggered by something we say. You know, are you ready, Martin? I'd said to one of our young brain-injured patients who was in a wheelchair, memory problems. And he always said, ready, willing, and disabled. Now, it's funny the first time, but you hear that every single time. <laughs> so I have to change my behaviour then, to change the verbal thing. We are going to start now, Martin, just to avoid that. And I think often what we say triggers these irritating comments. Now, let's look at helping people learn more efficiently. Um, repetition, it's widely used, but on its own, it's not particularly effective. It's not an effective strategy. Things go in one ear and out the other. And yet, relatives will often say to you, oh, it's just a question of repetition, really, isn't it? Well, of course, we need to repeat things, but repetition by itself isn't a particularly good strategy for improving learning. Spaced retrieval or expanded rehearsal, they mean the same thing. Um, the Americans tend to say spaced retrieval and the Brits tend to say expanded rehearsal, but it's the same thing. I'll come back to this later. Errorless learning, avoiding trial and error learning, is now a very big part of memory rehab. And the method of vanishing cues. So these last three are all important in helping people learn new information. So spaced retrieval. We present the material to be remembered, typically a new name or a short telephone number or a short address, something that's within their immediate memory span. And as we know, most of them have a normal immediate memory span. Um, and then you test immediately. So you say the new telephone number and they repeat it back immediately. They can do that. Then you wait a second or two, test them again. Then maybe a few seconds, test them again. And you've only told them once, but you've gradually increased the retention interval. And it's a successful method. And I was once in Moscow and, and I was in a hospital and the therapist brought in an amnesic patient and they said to me, you're the expert, teach him something. It's quite scary when that happens, I can tell you. So I thought, well, I'll teach him my name. And I did it with expanded rehearsal. And in the end, as he left, as through an interpreter, of course, he said, Spasiba, Barbara. Goodbye, Barbara. And he'd learned my name. And the therapist couldn't believe it. They said, he's never learned anything. So you can teach even very severely impaired people certain useful everyday things if you use this method. So you're gradually building up the retention interval. Now, does it work? Well, it's widely used with people with dementia, 
and the, perhaps the guy best known is Cameron Camp here in the States. Um, but it's also been used with people with non-progressive conditions, so McKay um, Solberg and others have demonstrated that. And then a, a meta-analysis in 2005 looked at 15 studies and recommends space retrieval for people with dementia. So it works for people with dementia and it works for people with non-progressive conditions. But why does it work? Well, I think it's because distributed practice is better than mass practice. I could do a whole lecture on studies that have demonstrated that, going way back to the 30s. But it's a very important research finding. If we distribute this practice like space retrieval, it's better than doing the same number of trials one after the other. Um, it seems to work better when combined with errorless learning. I'll come on to that in a moment. And I realise a lot of you know these strategies very well. Um, yeah, so errorless learning. Um, and I've done a lot of work over the past uh, 20, 30 years in errorless learning. But basically, it's a teaching technique whereby people are prevented as far as possible from making mistakes while they're learning a new skill or acquiring new information. And you can do that in a number of ways. There's not one style of... If you're doing it as a research study, of course, you've got to do the same thing for everybody. But clinically, there's all sorts of ways you can reduce or prevent errors occurring. You can um, give spoken instructions, written instructions. You can guide a person through a task. And the, it's a principle. And the principle is to avoid mistakes being made during learning and to minimise the possibility of erroneous responses. Now, errorless learning comes from two theoretical backgrounds. Um, errorless discrimination learning from behavioural psychology, and some of you will know this work, Terrace and his Pigeons in the 1960s, and this is the background I came from. I'm a behaviourally trained clinical psychologist who then specialised in neuropsychology. Um, and the other theoretical impetus background is implicit learning from cognitive psychology. Loads and loads of studies on that over the years. So implicit learning is learning without conscious recollection, as most of you will know. A number of people done work in that area. And we know from those studies that people with amnesia can learn normally or nearly normally under some circumstances. But you do see anomalies. If you're giving a perceptual priming task or a fragmented picture task, like the one illustrated there, they might see the most fragmented picture and say, it's a car, for example. And then instead of getting better with each presentation, they get stuck on this car, the incorrect response. However many times you see them, they give you the incorrect response. And if you work with these patients, you will have all have seen that kind of error. Um, so I came from the behavioural side, the pigeon work and developmental uh, disorders of children work. And Alan Badley came from the other side, the cognitive psychology. And we were working together at this time. So we asked the question... Do people with amnesia learn more if they're prevented from making mistakes while they're learning? Simple experimental question. And the answer was a resounding yes. It happened to every single amnesic patient in our study. However densely amnesic they were, they had to be pretty densely amnesic to be in the study. So essentially we had three groups. We had 16 young controls, 
16 elderly controls and 16 people with a dense amnesia. And we operationally defined that by scoring zero on a, a delayed prose recall task. So that was how we decided they were densely amnesic. Um, now we used a STEM completion procedure uh, under two conditions, error four and error less. So in the error four condition, we forced them to make mistakes. So I would say, I'm thinking of a five letter English word beginning with Q-U, guess what it might be? Any guesses? Queen is a good guess, but it's wrong. Q is a good guess, but it's wrong. Quote is a good guess, well, actually it's, it was quote now study, but they usually say quiet <laughs> or quiet or something like that. We forced them to make three mistakes. And then we told them the correct answer, quote, which they wrote down. So we made them make mistakes first, and then we, they wrote down the correct answer. In the other condition, they're prevented from making mistakes. So I'm thinking of a five-letter English word beginning with PR, and the word is prize. So that in each case, they wrote down the correct word. Right, we did um, three learning trials and three test trials. Everything's counterbalanced. So some people have error four first, some have error less first, some have the quote and other words in one condition and sometimes in the other condition. It's all scientifically properly done. Right, yeah, three learning trials and three test trials over a 30 minute period. Now, these are the young controls, error less in black and error four in purple. They're marginally better, but they're nearly at ceiling. Doesn't tell us a great deal. With the elderly group, not quite so good overall, still marginally better. With the 16 people with amnesia, less good overall, but every single one of those 16 learned more under the error four condition. No, under the error less condition, when we prevented them making mistakes. And it was so powerful, I changed my clinical behavior overnight. And I never say to somebody with severe memory problems now, have a guess, you might be right. I always say, only tell me if you're sure. And um, the only time I make them guess is if it's a, a recognition memory task and they're forced to choose one or the other. Right, now, um, I didn't, I don't in rehab to teach people lists of words. So and then the next question is, does this principle, can we use this principle for real life tasks? So I applied errorless learning with some colleagues um, to real life problems. We had a man with both amnesia and visual object technosia. He's a famous JBR patient of, of Warrington and Chalice, if you know that literature. But he was also one of my patients. Um, we had a man with Korsakoff syndrome that we taught to use um, electronic organizer, just coming out at the time they were. And we had a man with a thalamic stroke learning people's names. And for each of those, we had half the material in one, error four, and half in error less. And every one of them learned more when they were prevented from making mistakes. Every one of them learned more in the error less condition. Oh yes, and we had another guy with, in post-traumatic amnesia who we were teaching orientation items. The name of the hospital, the name of the ward he was on, the name of some of the staff and some of the patients. Um, but since then, I mean, I, there's a lot more I could say about that, but in, because of time I won't. But a number of studies have been done now, up until this year, where people have used um, errorless learning to teach several everyday tasks to people from different diagnostic groups. It's been used with TBI, stroke, encephalitis, anoxia, uh, Alzheimer's disease, and so on, uh, of different ages, 
and at different times post-insult. It's a robust finding. And errorless learning is superior to trial and error learning for people with severe memory problems. You could look at other groups, like if, if you're a um, speech and language therapist and you're working with people with naming problems, there's work being done there, and there's no difference between errorful and errorless, but the patients like the errorless better. It's kinder. They're not failing. And the reason it doesn't matter so much for them is because they have a, at least some episodic memory functioning. Right, and why does it work? Well, in order to benefit from our mistakes, we have to be able to remember them. And if errorless learning depends on implicit memory, which our group believes it does, that, that system's not good at eliminating errors. That's what our episodic memory does, and these people don't have episodic memory functioning, or very little episodic memory functioning. So those people who only have implicit memory functioning working for them, if they make an incorrect response, that response get, can get strengthened. You're strengthening an incorrect response. So, um, and we know from several studies that prior errors cause more interference for those who are reliant on implicit memory. So that's why we need to use errorless learning. Now, vanishing cues, Betty Gliske, Elizabeth Gliske there, that, uh, from now in Tucson, Arizona, originally from Toronto. Um, vanishing cues is a method whereby prompts are provided and then gradually faded out. So, for example, if you're teaching the name Caroline, which you did with one of our Alzheimer's patients, he wants to learn Caroline, she's somebody who meets at his social club, we write the name Caroline, he copies it, then we leave off the last letter, he copies it and completes the last letter, then the last two, the last three, and so on. It was first reported by Gliske in 1986, and a number of studies since then have reported some success. Why does that work? Well, I suspect it's because it's basically an errorless learning, or at least an error reduction approach. It's hard to make an error with that Caroline example, for example. Um, now, this is Linda Clare. She was a PhD student and a colleague of mine, uh, and now I consider her to be the world expert in cognitive rehabilitation for people with dementia. She's a very good speaker. If you're thinking of inviting her over at any time, I could recommend her. And she likes travelling. <laughs> right. <clears throat> but this, these are studies from her PhD. Now, I don't normally work with Alzheimer's patients, but I was supervising Linda, and that's the group she was working with. Uh, <coughs> she applied errorless learning principles to people with Alzheimer's disease in combination with space retrieval and vanishing cues to teach them some practical everyday information and some of these showed considerable maintenance over time, even though the disease was progressing. So let's, VJ, this was our most, or Linda's most successful patient. Uh, and he was first published in 1999. But he wanted to re relearn the names of people at his social club. So Linda goes with him to the social club with her Polaroid camera that has 14 films on it. So she takes 14 photographs. Not a very scientific explanation for why there were 14, but there. Anyway, it's a baseline over several weeks, and this is a combination of those six weeks baseline. He's typically getting three of the 14 correct, uh, the same three, and we leave those in because it's good for his self-esteem. Then Linda sees him at home once a week and teaches him one name a week. <laughs> 
and after 11 weeks she's learned all of them. She's using errorless learning and space retrieval and vanishing cues. She's using a combination of those three. Um, then there's generalisation. He's learning them from photographs. Does that mean he really knows the people? So Linda goes with him to the social club and VJ has to look at the photo, find the right person and introduce that person by name to Linda. And he gets one wrong there and this is somebody that's cut and dyed her hair since the photograph. But basically he's very successful. There's a three month, six month and nine month follow up where he's at 100%. Now, he's going to the club once a week and he's practicing for about 10 minutes a day with his sister, who's been told, don't let him guess, and Vijay's told, don't guess, if you can't remember the name, look on the back, and so on. Then Linda, in her wisdom, takes all the photographs away, so he can't practice at home with his sister, and she waits for two years, and then she tests him again. Now, he's not as good as before, but look how much better he is than baseline. By now, he's almost nine years post-diagnosis. He was six years post when she started. And clinically, I think this is really important. If you can teach these people things while they're still able to learn something sensible, you might be able to keep them out of long-term care, you might reduce the stress on the families and so forth. Now, if you're doing errorless learning and all these new learning methods, teach one thing at a time. That's another thing about the past. You find people trying to teach 10 things at once or five things at once, which is not a good learning strategy. Take into account individual preferences and styles. Focus on things the patient wants to and needs to learn. And use material that be useful in everyday life. And you must build generalisation into the programme. I started off in what was then called mental handicap in Britain and mental retardation in the States, now developmental learning disability. And we always built generalisation into the programmes. You wouldn't expect, I mean if it occurs without with any training, great, it's a bonus. But if you don't build it in, a lot of rehab's going to fail. Right, now the next big strategy are compensatory aids. And there are hundreds and hundreds of these about. You need to find the right one for the right patient and the right circumstances. Um, this is, these are just some of the ones that we've used. But let's take the clock. I love this top one, um, this top clock. People that are saying, what day is it today? What day is it today? You can have a clock that tells you the day. The one underneath tells you the day and the time. But that is more complicated, I think. I think you probably, I would tend to want two separate clocks, a time clock and a day clock. But there's loads and loads of things like this. Um, this particular one costs £27, which is probably about $35. So it's not hugely expensive. Um, now, external memory aids, usually used to compensate for prospective memory problems, um, they're widely available. They can be very inexpensive. And they have the potential to be highly effective in compensating for prospective memory problems. But there can be difficulty in both learning and remembering to use electronic aids. But even very densely amnesic patients can learn them. They can learn them. We've, well, there's lots of evidence for that. We've seen it ourselves. Um, so there can be a real aid to independence, but people with memory problems forget to use them. 
Um, they may have difficulty programming them. If it's anything electronic, they may have difficulty programming them. And they may use them in an unsystematic or disorganised way. You may have all seen patients that have got a little diary in their pocket, they've got a piece of paper by the telephone at home, they've got things dotted around, and that's not good. Um, and sometimes they're embarrassed that they have to use these things. But, yeah, so the real problem is the people who need memory aids the most have the greatest difficulty in using them because their use involves memory. But there are ways around this, of course. Now, I'm just going to show you the first video clip. And this is um, somebody who uses a memory aid, but it's of no use to him. This is a patient some of you may know, um, uh, um, Clive Waring. I can use his real name because there's books and documentaries about him. Who's the most famous amnesic person in Britain, a musician. Um, I've known him since 1985. But this is his wife, Deborah, talking about Clive's need to keep writing down that he's just woken up. So I'll show you, and it's, he's using it very well, but it's no use. So let's have a look at that. Here, it is momentous. He has to write it down, and he has to write it down on any available surface. If the diary is in front of him, he will write it down there. He will record the time, 10.50 a.m., awake first time, 10, and then he looks at the previous entry, which was 10.48 a.m. awake first time, and he says, no, I wasn't awake then, that wasn't me, that wasn't proper awakeness. This is the first real awakeness. So he goes through the diary, scoring out previous entries and underlining the current new entry, because this now is the real awakeness. All the previous awakenesses are unknown to me. So what he says, so I'm, I still see Clive. I saw him about three weeks ago. Um, he's still as memory impaired as ever. He, he's still doing this. He's been doing this since 1985, but to a lesser extent now. Anyway, but some memory impaired people use compensatory aids and strategies really well. And I study way back when I was on sabbatical in Phoenix with George Prigatano's group, um, I got together with Sue Kime, some of you may know her, she's an OT, did a lot of work on helping memory impaired people, and we, we were working with this young woman who'd had, um, she'd had a road traffic accident, not a severe injury, and then some emboli come up from her legs and lodged in her brain and made her severely amnesic. And Sue said, I'm going to teach her to use what we call a filofax, I think you call it a day planner or something. Anyway, and she got this really complicated file of facts, and I thought, he'll never work. She's too impaired. And I didn't say anything to Sue, because I'm a polite English woman, you know. <laughs> Don't like to be rude. And Sue taught her. And she taught her to use the different sections of the file of facts, and she taught this. And then every time an alarm went off, she had to look at the file of facts and know what she was doing. This woman managed to get paid employment at the end of the rehab program in a library in Arizona. Um, so they use this alarm to teach her to check the diary. She ch the diary checking increased. It maintained at follow-up more than a year later. And um, we believe the young woman was using her implicit memory. So this uh, alarm made her look at the diary and so forth. And she did get paid employment. But why do some memory impaired people use compensations well and others don't? Well, we've done a number of studies trying to tease that out. 
But, and these are two of the early studies. Um, age, so younger people better than older people. Um, severity, those with virtually no score on the River Me Behavioural Memory Test, one of my tests that we use quite a lot, uh, those with a score of zero don't do as well with those who get a three. Now, three is still pretty impaired, but they've got a little bit of functioning there. Um, if they've used premorbid AIDS, if they've used AIDS premorbidly, that helps. Um, and all of those seem to play a part in predicting which people are going to make efficient use of AIDS. Now, one of the things, and some of you may know about this and some don't, but I love this system. And it all started with an American, no, a British engineer working in California, working together with an American neuropsychologist. So the British engineer and the American neuropsychologist got together to help the engineer's son, this young man, who'd had a severe traumatic brain injury in a road traffic accident and wanted to get back to college. So the engineer and the neuropsychologist got together to come up with the software to drive this paging system. Um, and we started to evaluate it in, in the UK. And we did, this is one of our trials, a randomised control trial. And we randomly allocated people into Group A or Group B. And Group A are going to get the pager first, and Group B are going to go on the waiting list first. Now, in the baseline period, there, there's no difference between them. So this is the baseline, taken over several weeks, and the way we did it was we interviewed the family and we said, what is it he or she needs to remember each day? Take the medication, feed the dog, put the hot water on, take your glasses to work, things like that. And so that's what they had to remember in the baseline period, and we had a checklist whether they did those things, and an independent person, a relative, filled in the checklist. We didn't get the memory-impaired person to do it because they wouldn't have remembered whether they'd done it or not. Right, that's the baseline, no difference. Then group A get the pager and group B stay on the waiting list. Wonderful. Group A go right up. Right, then we get group A to give the pagers back and group B meanwhile get the pagers. Group A go back a little bit but still better than baseline and group B now goes shooting up. Now, these are beautiful data. They are, beaut they are my favourite data of any study. They're lovely, aren't they lovely? <laughs> uh, so, th th anyway. Um, now, we also, in, in this randomised control trial, we started off with 200 referrals from throughout the United Kingdom. And 146 actually completed every single stage. That's not a bad number for these kind of figures. For, for our sort of studies, where we're often working with three or five or one, we thought that was pretty good. Anyway, we also then looked at diagnostic groups within that 146. Now, the people with traumatic brain injury were the same as the main group, but that's not surprising because they were by far the biggest uh, subgroup of the main group. Then we looked at people with encephalitis, and all of those improved. We looked at people with stroke. Now, they did improve, but they're the ones that drop back slightly. And some of them drop right back to baseline. And why, you might think? Well, I think there's two possible reasons there. One is they're older, but more importantly, a lot of those stroke patients had had an um, anterior communicating artery aneurysm ruptured. So they had frontal lobe damage. And then we had 12 children in the study. We had the youngest was seven. 
the oldest was 17, I think, of the kids. Because my, our thinking at the time was, if this is going to work, it's got to work across the board. We're not going to be selective. We're going to take anybody with memory and or planning problems, provided they could read the message on the screen of the pager. That was the only criteria. And a seven-year-old, you know, he forgot to take his homework home, he forgot to feed his hamster, he forgot to go swimming after school, he forgot to get the school bus. So these were all the things he had. But they all chose their own targets. Um, now, so we showed that NeuroPage significantly reduces the everyday failures of memory and planning in people with brain injury. We showed with some of single case studies within that group that we could save the health and social services money. Um, and what was really nice for us was our clinical research influenced clinical practice. So the health authority set up a clinical service for people throughout the United Kingdom and that is still running today. There's typically at any one time about 40 people on the service. The families don't have to pay, the health authority or occasionally a charity pays for them. And it costs in dollars about $90 a month. That's use of the pager, the airtime, contribution towards the staff running the service, contribution to the health authority for the room we're using, and so on. So it's, it's a lot for some families, but it's not a lot of money. You know, not when you, they spend thousands on scanners, for example. So I'm all for going cheap when we can. <laughs> um, anyway, I'll just show you a video of one of the young women with a traumatic brain injury. Now, she wasn't in the big study. She was in a pilot study. So they say she's one of 15 patients. It was our pilot. But it gives you an idea of how the system works. Robinson was one of 15 patients trying out the simple paging device. It's giving fresh hope to the thousands of patients who suffer head injuries every year. Seven years ago, 25-year-old Haley was in a car accident on holiday in Crete. Her brain injuries left her totally dependent on others, but today she's even looking to buy her own home. The NeuroPage helped to overcome the damage to her memory by reminding her what to do and when to do it. What messages would you write on your pager this week? Those using the device call in with all the information the patient will need. This is then fed into a computer and sent out via the pages at the appropriate times. Scientists have called it a minor miracle. Its next step is to the Oliver Zagman Centre in Ely, and there are hopes it will soon be widely available on the NHS. So it really has, I think, made it a lot easier for people to be independent much sooner. It can make the difference, for example, between perhaps being released from hospital slightly earlier than you would have done otherwise, because you've learned to take your own medication thanks to using your page. Like the others who've tried it, Haley's life has turned around. She's gone back to college and taken up old hobbies like horse riding. But it also provides invaluable help to carers like Haley's mother. It's wonderful for the whole family to see Haley that she has never, we never thought she'd ever be like it. And um, of course, with the neuro page, really, we've got a lot to be thankful for. We thought we'd have to keep reminding her do this, do that, don't forget the happy gloves, don't forget the bus. But now she doesn't want to trust it. I've always wanted to be independent. Mm. I'm getting a second chance. The pager could also provide financial benefits for the NHS. It may free up hospital beds and reduce the need for paid carers. But for people like Haley, there can be no greater benefit in being able to regain part of the life she lost. 
due to the colonial cookies to Cambridge. A simple but brilliant idea. Well, it is simple, and there's people, about 80% of those in our study benefited from it. Um, it's not right for everybody, and they don't have control over it, but putting in their own messages. So if people can use smartphones or Google Calendar or whatever, use them. But it's these that need that extra support and um, you know, therapeutic input. Uh, they're the ones who really have benefited from it and are still benefiting. And we've done several papers on this over the years. And of course there's loads of electronic devices now. Television-assisted prompting device, where the TV will turn on to prompt you what you have to do. Mobile phones, various kinds, smartphones, Google Calendar. Uh, Sensecam, which then became autographer, which then became narrative clip, which is a little camera worn around the neck, led to wonderful results with certain patients, including people with Alzheimer's disease. That's another story which I haven't got time to go into now. But there's loads of these around, and I know many of you will be using these or recommending these. And there's plenty of evidence for the success of compensations. Neuropage has been the best evaluated electronic aid that we know of. Um, SenseCam, uh, Google Calendar, all of these have had published studies showing that they're effective. Mobile phones and smartphones, television and prompting devices, and so on. Now the third strategy is this organising the environment where people, you're avoiding the need for a memory and this is particularly useful for those with very severe and widespread cognitive problems. Um, there's smart houses, you know, that turn on lights when you go, that tell you if the things in the fridge are uh, out of date. This picture I've got up there is a wonderful phone that we got from the Royal Institute for Blind People in London. It has very big buttons and on each button is a photograph of somebody important in the person's life. So maybe her daughter, her doctor, health practitioner or whatever. And that button is automatically programmed to that person's telephone number. So if the woman with severe memory problems wants to phone her daughter, she presses that button and it automatically does a daughter's telephone number. Um, there's so many of these, and they're so, so useful for getting around all these everyday problems. Um, signposts and labelling that we use all the time, the verbal environment that I mentioned earlier. Uh, you can, if people can't read because they've lost the ability to read or never been able to read, or uh, what, you can use pictorial things, uh, so verbal or pictorial labels. Um, now this book I mentioned, yes, Jill and I mentioned it yesterday I think, this is the latest of our books to come out. It's got 2017 date but it's just out last month. The Brain Injury Rehab Workbook and each chapter in there is a chapter on memory, executive functioning, mood, communication uh, and so on. Um, each chapter, uh, it starts off with some theory then some clinical work and it's, it ends up with um, some exercises that you might try or some questionnaires that you might try to get further information. Now I'm going to end this little section here before going on to the future with a case study. One of the Oliver Zangwill patients, he's one of the people in that book, um, Life After Brain Injury Survivor Stories, one of our highly successful patients, Mark, 30 years old, and he was able to return to a high-powered job. Now, he was on a mountain bike holiday in Switzerland, 
And um, he fell 1,000 feet down the mountain. Horrible. We think what happens, what happened was his friends cycled on and he wanted to get a photograph and he stepped back and fell off the mountain. And he fell 1,000 feet. He's airlifted to a hospital in Geneva in Switzerland, gets very good treatment there. Um, he had a severe head injury, or as I say now, traumatic brain injury. He was in coma for a week and in post-traumatic amnesia for a further week. Um, a CT scan showed diffuse axonal injury, edema, I know you spell it without the O, but this is British spelling, uh, small deep midline hemorrhages, and a subdural hematoma. It was a pretty severe head injury. Um, and then things went, started to go wrong. Uh, the hematoma was evacuated via a burr hole. He had a trachea in for 10 days, but he got meningitis, pneumonia and septicemia. Wasn't expected to live, lived, and this isn't uncommon in TBI patients. So um, eventually he gets over that and he's tr transferred to London where he lives and uh, went to live with his mother. Um, he was very agitated and ataxic. Big guy, big strapping guy. Um, he needed two people to help him get from sitting to standing. So it wasn't a mild TBI at all. Anyway, nine months after uh, the injury, he's transferred to our centre, the Oliver Zengel Centre. We usually take people at least a year post, but sometimes a bit earlier. So Mark was a bit earlier. Uh, and we were asked to help him with memory, attention and planning problems. They were identified as his main difficulties. He was also described as lacking initiative. He had some insight, but he didn't appreciate the nature and extent of his memory problems or the impacts of these on his work. He had, um, he had a very senior job for a, a famous uh, insurance company where he was an underwriter. So he decided whether people could get insurance or not. And not just normal people like you and me, but big shipping companies, for example. It was a very high-powered job. Um, his intellectual on neuropsych assessment, his intellectual function is above average. His particular problems with memory, he's at the first percentile on the Wexler Memory Scale revised. Um, he's got some executive deficits with planning and organisation. So he set goals for the programme, as all our patients or clients are. One goal, to develop an awareness of his strengths and weaknesses in a written form so he could write down his strengths and weaknesses. Describe how these would impact on his domestic, social and work situations. Identify whether he can return to his former employment as an underwriter. Um, manage his own financial affairs independently. And demonstrate competence in negotiating skills at work as rated by a work colleague. I mean, we didn't understand all these things he had to do, so he had to work closely with the employers. Right, and de develop a range of leisure interests. So we always have a goal on understanding of their brain injury, and there's nearly always a goal on leisure, and then any other goals that are important in their life. Now, he attended groups. We a lot of our program is in groups. He went to the Understanding Brain Injury group, he went to the Memory group, and he went to the Problem Solving group. But he also has individual sessions. He has individual psychological support, uh, individual work with memory, individual work on computers because he's going to need computers when he goes back to work. We don't use this computer-based training, CogMed or Luminosity or those things. We 
don't think there's any good evidence for those. We're quite anti those, in fact. Um, and lots of liaison with work. So um, the UBI, the Understanding Brain Injury, increased his awareness and understanding of what had happened to him. In the memory group, he's asked to keep a diary of his errors and prompted if necessary. In the problem-solving group, this is now really our executive group, he's given uh, strategies to help him cope with his difficulties, goal management training kind of thing. Uh, consider the work, what he has to do at work, how his uh, problems are going to impact on that. And he began to use his diary for appointments and things to do. Um, he used a contacts card for the computers, but one of the things he had to do in his job was remember these senior bosses' birthdays or how many children they had uh, so he could be polite to them. So he kept contact cards for that. Um, he used mnemonic strategies to remember people's names and he still does that to this day. He de developed a database for high-risk areas. He had to know if there was an oil spill in Alaska or an earthquake in Chile. He had to know those things because it affected whether he was going to give insurance uh, to these um, firms. And this stepwise increases in responsibilities at work. This was a big part of the programme. The work wanted him back. They kept his job open. So he started to go back one day a week where he shadowed a colleague. Then gradually um, he, he went back two days a week and then he started to take on jobs with little responsibility with other people at work monitoring him. And then gradually he's given more and more responsibility and they're very happy with him by then. And any, any problems, he's coming to us at this stage two days a week and going into work two days a week. That's our integration phase. We have an intensive phase at the beginning where they come four days a week and then the integration phase where they're trying to get back to some kind of normal life. So those steps allowed Mark's manager to develop a confidence in Mark's judgment in a high-risk business. It enabled Mark to develop his own confidence. It allowed him time to apply the strategies he'd learned. And seven months after starting our programme, which is what, 15, 16 months after his injury, he began to go to work again on the company payroll at his normal salary. And he remained employed there, and then he got headhunted. And he, well, he's still working, we're still in touch with him, he's coming back to the Christmas party next week. Um, by working, he contributes to the cost of his rehabilitation because he's paying tax, he's never had any welfare benefits. Um, so intensive rehab in that case was both clinically and economically effective. He got married, he's got two daughters now, this is one of them, and he's quite happy for me to show this photograph. Why was Mark so successful? Well, first of all, he's an intelligent guy, and I think this cognitive reserve idea that I know you're interested in, John, and I believe in that. So that's one factor. But I think also he didn't have severe frontal lobe damage, and I think that has to be... If they're going to be really successful and get back to high-powered jobs, they've got to have these things. He's, he's quite young. I don't know the answers to these. These are just some suggestions. We've got to also deal with the emotional consequences of memory impairment. 
um, which I'm not going to spend much time on just to flag it up, but anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, fear, fear that they're going crazy, that's common, mood swings, um, obsessive-compulsive disorder, stress, etc. So this is the last little video clip, and then we'll go on to the future, which is only going to be a few minutes. And now, I wanted to show you this because my favourite video clip of all, and it's a ward in a National Health Service hospital in the north of England full of Alzheimer's disease patients or patients with Alzheimer's disease and a banjo player goes in and it's I think this is dealing with some of the emotional things it's just cheering them up that's all he's basically doing now the first woman we focus on used to be an opera singer so you'll hear her tra la la along with the banjo player the second woman sings beautifully but it's jargon we were talking about singing to patients earlier, weren't we? So she can sing with him, but she's singing a load of jargon. The third patient, my favourite one, um, she's got no language at all, but he manages to engage her in the song. And it's a song they would have all known in their youth, Oh You Beautiful Doll. Is that song known over here? It's an old people's song, but they would have all known it.
I'm going to have to stop it because I won't finish the future. But it's just so lovely. I wanted you to see that. And it's so cheap and easy and just cheering them up. And I'm into, you know, there's, we can't get enough money for our rehab. We've got to find ways to, to find it on a, with less money. I think in the future we're going to get more sophisticated technology, for not just for imaging but for compensatory strategies. I think collaborating with the pharmacological societies, you know, giving drugs on their own, giving our kind of treatment on its own, they may be a lot better if you put them together. And there's work done with people with aphasia, with people with learning disabilities, showing that's the case. Um, imaging techniques, I can see they're useful for helping us understand things. But for helping us set goals, find out what the family is upset about, I'm less sure, I'm afraid. I'm quite sceptical about this. And, you know, I worked for 20 years for the Medical Research Council in Cambridge, where 95% of the scientists were into imaging. And I was considered a second-class citizen because I wasn't into imaging. And I used to say to myself, I did some CBT on myself, really, who helps brain-injured people more, the images or me? If you had a relative that needed rehabilitation, who would you want them to go? The images or to me? Well, you'd choose me, wouldn't you? I mean, sensibly, we're the ones that do all the hard graft, but we don't get the kudos. We don't get the credit. Anyway, we can argue about this, but that's my views. Um, we need better evaluation of memory rehab programs as a whole topic that would be an interesting uh, lecture to give them. But these, I think, are two really important things. We've got to somehow persuade the purchasers of healthcare that they've got to fund the rehab programs. Well, there's plenty of evidence they're clinically effective and economically effective. And we've got to provide rehab where there's a shortage of funding. Not just in the developing countries, the, the less well-off countries, but in well-off countries like America and the United Kingdom. We're not doing a good enough job. Um, now, this is a, a memory aids resource centre that I think we could develop these. They're, they're wonderful. They're a little room in a hospital and you fill it with all sorts of memory aids, low-tech, post-it notes, high-tech stuff. It functions like a library. People go there, they try out various aids. They usually go with their OT. They try out various aids. They take one away for a week or two weeks. If it works, they can go and buy it. If it doesn't work, they take it back. And they haven't wasted their money. I think these are great. Um, now, and I'm not going to really have time for this, but if you get a shortage of funding, the, around the world there's funding shortages that prevent us from carrying out our ideal rehab plans. But we can train support workers, and we're starting to do that a lot at the Oliver Zangwill Centre now, for people that come into us and then go home and need ongoing help. Um, so one, one case, this is, uh, Jill mentioned him yesterday, this is one of our survivors of encephalitis, very severe dense amnesia, fairly pure amnesic syndrome, 60-year-old man, profound memory impairment, very emotionally upset, he can't go back to work, he can't, his wife's got too much stress, etc., etc. We got a lot of those reduced when he was on our rehab programme. But then he goes home and there were no funds available. So I'll, I'll just tell you this. We got in students from the local university and trained them up. And in return for getting some clinical experience, Eddie and his wife are getting free care. And we monitor those students, but the university students are doing it. Um, so 
And just before I finish, oh, I suppose I have some time for questions, but we did start a bit later, John. Um, I, I just wanted to tell you that the, um, the International Neuropsychological Society, the mid-year meeting, immediately after that, we always hold our two-day rehab meeting. And they are the best rehab meetings I ever go to. I may be a bit biased because I'm chair of that group and I founded that group, but they are smashing rehab meetings. So if you're going to the INS in Cape Town, immediately afterwards is our two-day rehab meeting also in Cape Town. The call for abstracts is now open and it closes on February the 5th. And Margaret Eagers, who's in Australia and is our organiser, will, um, if you email her, she'll send you all the details. But it's a very, it's, a, it's not like INS where you're doing proper research and that. I mean, we do do proper research, but it's more friendly and networking and helping each other and collaborating and all the things we should do in rehab. So I would encourage you to come to that. And finally, rehabilitation makes clinical and economic sense. You have to tell your purchasers this. We need to draw on a number of different models and theories. We help people compensate for, bypass or reduce their everyday problems and survive more efficiently in their own most appropriate environments. And it is possible to combine theory, scientific methodology and clinical relevance. Um, and uh, these are my last five books. Um, there's another one coming out next year that I've co-edited with Jill and two others, an Australian and a Dutch woman. And it's called Neuropsychological Rehabilitation, the International Handbook. It's got 43 chapters in it. It's state of the art. It's genuinely international. We have 18 countries contributing. So I hope you'll all get that book when it comes out. And thank you very much for your attention. I think one thing that was really interesting was the fact that he had an employer that was, waiting. was willing yeah. to work with him and come back. Yeah. How important is that? Yeah. Because I'm not quite sure you see yeah. that everywhere. No. Um, yeah, I don't know of any sort of formal studies on this, but our feeling is if they're, if they're in employment and the employer's willing to hold the job open while they can learn things and recover a bit, they do much better. If they've never had employment, uh, which a lot of young TBI guys don't have, or if the employer gets rid of them, that's worse. So I agree with you, and I think that that was certainly helpful for Mark. His and his employers were very much involved in the rehab as well, you know, monitoring, yeah. letting him shadow them. And then we also, there's certain firms, you know, when, like, um, if they work for the gas board, they get a better chance of getting back to work than if they work for the electricity board, for example. So there's things like this, partly, yeah, yeah. And we have this disability um, resettlement service, which there are officers that try to help disabled people get back to work. We don't have vocational counsellors that you have over here. Our OTs do most of that, 
return to work or alternatives to work. A lot of it is alternatives mm-hmm. to work. Um, but these disability resettlement officers, they're not very good. They don't understand our folk, really. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, the best thing is to have an employer that's got some sympathy and holding your job open for you. I think it's really hard to find, mm-hmm. you know, certainly around here. You have other questions in here? Thank you for a great talk. Uh, you mentioned that it's not uncommon and probably more uh, the rule than the exception that our patients have more than one cognitive deficit. Yeah. And uh, your program and in, in your uh, research, have you found uh, what has been your decision tree for figuring out what to tackle first, or do you try to address all those problems simultaneously? Mm-hmm. I know around here, particularly uh, Dr. Charwadi has been uh, and others have been working on deciding whether or not uh, rehabilitating one area of deficits might lead to greater success in uh, rehabilitating other areas, but it wasn't sure how clinically... Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's actually driven by the families and the patient. And this, when they come for the two-day assessment, Jill was talking to some people about today earlier on, um, we start to set preliminary goals of what, you know, what, what do you hope to get out of rehab? Why, why do you think you're here? Um, what are your expectations? And then when they actually, if they come on the full program, we do a mixture of things, but I've been talking mostly about the full program, where they come for the intensive bit first and the integration bit. It's really discussing with the family, the team members involved, and the client or the patient, what it is they want. And sometimes they're unrealistic, of course. They want things we're never going to be able to achieve. But then we try to, you know, but the, the example I give is memory. If they say, I want my memory back, that's my main goal. I've got to remember like I used to. Well, we probably can't do that, but we could find a way to help you take your medication independently or uh, find your way to the local shops or use a memory system, um, which is what Eddie did, that last guy. Um, so it's not driven by us, and that's where I think we would be different from, say, the Kessler. It's, it's always, we've, one of our core principles is we're setting functionally relevant and meaningful goals for the patient and the family. But those are the goals that are at least potentially achievable. So we don't set, we don't let them have unrealistic goals. We have to persuade them to come down a bit or make it smaller or something like that. And you know, most, most people aren't gonna have more than one problem. And I think Jill was saying earlier to some people that with Eddie, with this, uh, the guy where we got the university students in, we thought, well, it's going to be mostly memory. Before he came in, we knew he was densely amnesic. We're going to have, but no, that's not what Eddie wanted. Eddie wanted to have less stress for his wife. He couldn't bear the strain on his wife. So that w- that then was a more important goal. know how to answer this. I think this is similar to the question, the debate we had yesterday about the self-generation stuff. But, um, and of course, it's never going to be completely errorless. It's error reduction. And even if 
you know, when I was saying five letter word beginning with PR and it's prize, write that down. And I'm not letting them guess. They might have already guessed inside. They might have thought another one. But, um, and we do baselines, you know, with, with um, VJ, we had a six week baseline where, of course, he's making errors. So, but once he starts learning, then as few errors as possible are allowed to creep in. And if we'd never, if we'd not done the baseline, he'd have made fewer errors and we might have done even better. But to evaluate it properly, I think you've got to have the baseline. But, um, and I don't know so much about the reward system. I mean, I think you need to talk to somebody else, like Jessica Fish, who some of you know Jessica's work, and she was a PhD student of ours. She now works with me and Jill. We share an office together. And she's done quite a lot on these reward system things. And you have to remember, I retired nine years ago. <laughs> I do do some clinical work. I still see patients two days a week. But I feel a bit nervous because I'm getting past it and these younger people are all taking over. Which is good. Which is good. I'm not against that. But you, you ask Jessica. I'll give you her email. She'll be able to answer your question. Um, in terms of goal setting, I know you had a goal with that one client that you had. He had to self-identify problems that would come up. Yeah. Um, I find as a clinician that clients would bring into attendance their awareness is very impacting. It's yeah. hard to come up with goals collaboratively. Yeah. What do you find is the best? Yeah, well, I mean, it's a mixture of things. Uh, if, it's, if the goal is to do, it, to, go, to do with going back to work, we, we, we never set as a goal, get back to work. But we do frequently set as a goal, identify what tasks you need to get back to work. Now, as well as all these groups, they're having an individual therapy. They're having their own, um, I think somebody here called it a primary therapist. We, we call it their ICP, their individual case program person. Um, anyway, this main therapist, they have lots of talks with her. It's usually a her, it could be a him, but it's usually a her. Um, and, you know, there's, in, in the groups, they're, they're often being monitored and their errors are being checked. So, and their group members will give feedback. Their peers was, uh, if he says, I don't have any problems with remembering things, the others will say, well, you do. Look, you didn't remember where, what seat you were in when you left the room just now, or something like that. Um, the understanding brain injury group is a lot about awareness of what's happened to them and what their main problems are. Um, we sometimes set behavioural experiment, behavioural yeah, experiments to do that. You know, I know Ben Yashay once said, uh, people with neglect, they don't recognise they've got neglect. And he puts uh, $20 bills in a semicircle on the table and he says, give me all the, uh, the bills you can see. And if they've lost, left a lot of $20 bills on the left-hand side of the table and then he can point them to that, they're more likely to say, yes, I do have a problem, than if you're getting them to pick up playing cards. So things like that. So, um, and, and you know, the ones we see at the Oliver's Angle Centre have to have some awareness that they've got problems. Otherwise, they wouldn't be on the programme. It, it's a behavioural contract. We have to want to take them, and they have to want to come to us. Now, the other centre I work, the Raphael, which is very severely impaired people, lots of people with disorders of consciousness, or not much, or just emerge from that. Um, of course, the goals we set there are very different, like tracking something or the yes-no response or something like that. But, um, and they don't 
they're not going to have good awareness. And I've had this conversation with George Primatano um, way back, and he said, if they don't have good awareness, it holds your rehab back. Well, it may hold it back, but it doesn't mean you can't do it. You know, I've worked with people in coma who can learn things. I've worked with severely mentally handicapped kids who can learn things. They've got no awareness. So it doesn't mean you can't do it. It is better to have awareness, but it's not essential, I think. So I'm not really sure about that. But I, we certainly try to improve awareness through particularly the Understanding Brain Injury Group, through monitoring and feedback. Video feedback we use quite a lot too. But, you know, we, we don't know all the answers, and it's not easy, is it? As, you know, we have failure. When, when I was doing my clinical training, there were two things that stuck in my mind particularly. One was you have to learn to live with your failures, and one was every patient you see should be capable of re being written up in a journal, which is very ambitious, but it means you're collecting information, you're doing your baselines, you're trying to evaluate it properly. So... And they're two opposite things, learning to live with your failures and writing everybody up for a journal. But they're two things I've always hung on to over the past 40 years. <laughs> well, it's getting late, so I want to thank Dr. Wilson for an excellent talk. And welcome to Kessler Foundation. We really appreciate you, appreciate you coming. Thank you for coming as well. To learn more about our scientists and the research of Kessler Foundation, go to www.kesslerfoundation.org. That's www.kesslerfoundation.org.